1: listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I wanted to talk about the unresolved episode from this past Wednesday that we released in conjunction with the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. Back on November 6, 2019, we published a 10-minute mystery on the tragic case of Mary Okono. This was a case we definitely wanted to dig a little more into. We finally were able to discuss this case with the victim's family and was able to put together a clear picture of who Mary was and how much she meant to the people who knew her. Now, if you haven't checked it out, then make sure you go back and take a listen. We released it just a few days ago as we continue our unresolved episodes. If you have any comments or feedbacks or just memories of Mary, send us an email at feedback at Ohio Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula
0: Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight, you're getting two mysteries for the price of one. Because we're going to start out with some paranormal phenomenon in a case that netted front-page coverage in Columbus in 1984 and went on to reap headlines around the country. But it's a tragic story that will end a decade later in the violent death of a child and an outcome that had a lot of people raising eyebrows. Both stories are chapters in the tumultuous life of Tina Resch, born in Columbus on Halloween week in 1969. Tina was just 10 months old when her mother, a heroin addict, left her at a local hospital, and Tina entered Ohio's foster system. She was placed with Joan and John Resch, a local couple who had served as foster parents for some 250 kids over the years, and they ended up adopting Tina before she turned three. Tina has claimed that by the age of 12, a boy that her parents were fostering began molesting her, and that when she finally told the rushes about it, she was slapped. Whatever the genesis was, Tina grew into a forceful and extroverted teenager who talked a lot, often too loud, and often using obscene language. And Joan and John Rush continued using the slap whenever they thought Tina had crossed the line. At school, she was pretty disruptive in class, so much so that the rushes had little choice but to keep her home and homeschool her. But having to spend more time together made things worse for the family, not better. Tina often found herself locked in her room or beaten in an effort to try and change her behavior. Reportedly, a psychological examination revealed Tina tended to disassociate and felt extreme tension in her relationships and that all of this left her with an intense desire to express herself. Some say it may have been that need for expression that led to what happened next. In 1982, Tina watched the Steven Spielberg movie Poltergeist and, probably like many of us who fell under the spell of that fun blockbuster, wondered if such things could be possible. Two years later, a 14-year-old Tina was reporting cases of objects suddenly flying about in the house of their own volition. Her parents not only believed her, but backed her up and even brought in an electrician to try and explain strange things that were happening to the lights, houses, and appliances. When they couldn't find anything wrong, the Rushes invited Mike Hardin, a reporter with the Columbus Dispatch, to come into their home and see it for himself. Hardin took along with him photographer Fred Shannon. The result of their visit was a sensational story, accompanied by a series of full-color photographs in the dispatch, showing Tina sitting in an armchair with a telephone handset flying in front of her. With a mainstream reporter and photographer unable to explain what they saw, Tina's claims gained weight. Everyone started referring to her as the Columbus poltergeist kid. The reporter, Mike Hardin, then brought on board someone who had experiences looking into such claims. His name was William Roll, a parapsychologist who served as director of the Physical Research Foundation in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Hardin told Roll he couldn't explain what he had experienced— In his presence, he said, a cup of coffee flipped through the air and spilled into Tina's lap before crashing into the fireplace, and he saw no explanation of how Tina could have done it. So William Roll came to town, moved in with the rushes for a time to study Tina, and went away impressed. He announced there had been genuine, spontaneous psychokinesis involving Tina and he personally believed it was not a poltergeist, that Tina herself harnessed the power of telekinesis. Years later, William Rule would write this of his experience. My first thought was that when a 14-year-old is the center of flying objects, the most likely explanation is a teen venting her frustration. Mike Harden didn't think this could explain the things he had seen and been told, but he admitted he could be mistaken. He invited me and an assistant to come and investigate and sent the company's plane to transport us. A few days later, on 11 March 1984, my assistant, Kelly Powers, and I arrived in Columbus and met the Resch family. By then, the media circus had begun, The New Jersey-Trenton Times, for one, wondered if the Rushes were living in another Amityville. A blinding snowstorm squirreled through Columbus on 8 March, the day the Rushes had been persuaded to meet the growing number of reporters who were interested in the phenomena. Tina was reluctant, and her stomach churned. Despite the excitement, she wondered if the reporters would think she was bad. The Hughes family friends, seemed to believe an evil spirit had attached itself to her. If the reporters thought so, too, it would be all over town. She could hardly eat when she sat down for breakfast. It was the worst meal the family had ever experienced. The chairs did a crazy dance, while plates loaded with food and glasses filled with juice flipped through the air, some soaring all the way into the family room. Joan had been up half the night cleaning. Now, in one case, Roll also produced a photo of a picture that he said had fallen from a wall in an upstairs room where he was standing. But he did admit he was facing away from the object when it fell. As I said, Tina's adoptive parents backed her up. John Resch told reporters... I see it, and I still don't believe it. How a glass can fly at a 90-degree angle through a doorway and around a corner, or a television can run with no electricity. I just turn my head away when it happens. Jody Gossage, a reporter with United Press International, noted that the living room was devoid of decorative touches. Joan explained that the pictures and ashtrays and mementos that remained intact had all been packed away. She said, "'I don't think we have two glasses left in the house. "'We've hidden everything that could get broken or hurt someone.'" Not surprisingly, there were plenty of skeptics, but they were not welcomed into the Resch household. James Randi, a stage magician and an investigator for a group called the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, was turned away at the door. Randy showed up at the Resch home and mingled with reporters. With him were a couple of instructors from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, astronomer physicist Steve Shore and astronomer Nick Sedgulak. Randy pulled out a check for $1,000 and waved it in front of the TV cameras, saying he'd been trying to give this money away to anyone who could show him an object that flew without human aid. He said many people who had tried for the money but failed were teenagers whose fraud was bolstered by indulgent parents and hoodwinked journalists. Even though Randy wasn't allowed into the house, he and his trio obtained the dispatch's photos and analyzed what evidence they could. They pointed to a photo where Tina's foot was hooked beneath a sofa, that had purportedly moved by itself. In another photograph, that of a picture frame taken right before the glass supposedly shattered in Tina's hands appeared to show the glass was broken before Tina even picked the frame up. At some point during all of this, the Columbus Dispatch photographer also acknowledged that he did not actually see the objects in his photo begin their flight through the air. Apparently, the poltergeist was so shy, incidents would only happen if he held his camera up, then looked away while snapping random shots in the hope of catching something but the tide really changed for the rushes when a television camera caught Tina in the act of deception. Drew Hadwall of WTVN in Columbus had his camera focused on a large table lamp when the lamp tumbled to the floor. Now, he hadn't intended to leave the camera on, but was excited to see it was still running. So he grabbed his equipment and rushed back to the station to get it ready for the evening news. That's when they saw Tina had knocked the lamp over on purpose. After that, any sympathy for the Rush family and their pesky poltergeist visitor was gone. The news coverage had made the Russia’s life a daily hell. Joan and John believed their reputation in the neighborhood was so trashed that they couldn’t stay. In 1986, they told Tina they were selling the house. Blaming her for all that had happened, they told her she needed to go find another place to live. Tina, still underage, was given two choices, go into a juvenile detention center, or move in with James Bennett, a young man who had lied and told authorities that he and Tina had married in secret. She chose Bennett, and the two did go on to marry but it was an abusive relationship. Tina said he turned into a monster, beat her, gagged and raped her, and burned her clothes to keep her from leaving. But she eventually escaped, made it to a woman's shelter, and got a divorce. In 1988, Tina became pregnant by a man she's never identified and had a daughter, Amber, that September. Afterward, Tina married Larry Boyer, and she and Amber took his name. But again, it was a violent union, and Tina had Larry arrested after he beat her unconscious. A social worker told Tina she'd better leave Larry, because if she kept Amber in such an environment, Ohio authorities would certainly take her child away. Tina reached out to that parapsychologist, William Roll, who had believed her during her whole paranormal affair, and Roll and his wife took her and little Amber into their home in Carrollton, Georgia. Tina began learning parenting skills and taking nursing and computer classes, and she started a relationship with a new man, David Heron, a truck driver and divorced father of a three-year-old daughter. Heron's daughter and her own were close in age and loved playing together. The couple split their time between Heron's trailer and a little apartment that Tina finally got through a public housing program. In 1993, the old poltergeist story reared its head, catching the interest of the TV series Unsolved Mysteries. But by the time that episode aired, Tina was sitting in a jail cell in Georgia, charged in the death of her daughter. People had been convinced things were looking up for Tina and her boyfriend. I mean, Tina was struggling to find a job. It's hard to find a job when you can't afford a babysitter or a car, but she thought she was making progress. Then, in April of 1992, Tina discovered bruises on her daughter's body and questioned Heron about them. He insisted she had fallen. Amber was a hyperactive child, and it was believable. Tina suggested they take her to the hospital to look her over anyway, but when Heron said that any such visit would require children's services to get involved, Tina, very familiar with the system, feared she might lose custody of Amber she lost a whole lot more because just two weeks later on April 13, 1992 Amber was dead On that day, Tina went to visit Jean Lagle. She was a psychiatrist and a hypnotherapist who often hired Tina to transcribe notes when Amber needed a little extra money. And Tina left Amber in Heron's care, as she often did since he was an experienced father with a three-year-old himself. But when Tina pulled into the driveway a few hours later, Heron was standing outside, distraught, He told Tina he couldn't wake Amber. The girl was rushed to the hospital, but she couldn't be saved. And an examination indicated she had many injuries, some old and some consistent with her having been sodomized. The coroner ruled the cause of death as blunt force trauma to the head, and Tina and Heron were both arrested. Amber was buried the Saturday before Easter in her pink Easter dress. Her small white casket was covered with flowers and a toy rabbit perched on top. Her mourners included many strangers who wept for her tragic death. Tina was taken to the funeral home in handcuffs to see her daughter, but she wasn't permitted to attend the service. Police not only feared how she might act, but how the public might act. Though it was already proven Tina was not with Amber at the time of her death, Heron accused her of having slapped Amber hard that morning, causing the fatal blow. He insisted he had never hit the child. Tina accused Heron of hurting Amber, recalling those former bruises and now doubting the stories of Amber falling and hurting herself. Authorities didn't know who to believe, so they charged them both. The end to this case was dramatic and controversial. Heron eventually admitted he had sodomized the child twice and that he had hit her that final day after learning he'd lost his job. But authorities equally thought it possible that Tina had hit her daughter earlier in the day, In any case, charges against Heron were reduced. He went to trial not for murder, but for cruelty to children, and was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years. Heron's confession did not get Tina off the hook. Prosecutors kept her charged with a capital crime that could have meant the death sentence in Georgia. She spent two years in jail awaiting trial. Finally, wore down and facing the threat of execution and public sentiment that was completely against her for not getting her daughter help, Tina agreed to something called an Alford plea. That's a special kind of plea in which you accept the court's ruling of guilt, even though you maintain your innocence. William Roll, the parapsychologist who had taken Tina in, advised her not to accept it, that he would help find people to prove her innocence. Later, he wrote this about Tina. Now a tall, lively, and volatile young woman in her early 20s, Tina could still be that troubled teen, desperate for affection, dreaming of happy endings. Abandoned by her mother at 10 months and adopted into a rigid, unforgiving household, Tina had not been ready for single parenthood at 18 and often found the role difficult and irritating, but she could never have killed Amber. Amber was her one real hope for a family of her own and a better future. But Roll's support of Tina was not enough to counter her fears that the state of Georgia intended to kill her. She took the deal. And the judge threw the book at her and sentenced her to life plus 20 years. She was last denied parole just last year and is still serving her time at Pulaski State Prison in Hawkinsville, Georgia. Heron, the man who admitted to actually hitting and raping Amber, is already out. He was released from Dooley State Prison in Georgia, in 2011. Throughout the murder case, Tina was referred to in the Atlanta press as the telekinetic mom, those 15 minutes of fame from her childhood branding her forever. Tina's adopted parents are both dead. So is the photographer who took that famous photo of the flying phone. In 2004, William Roll co-authored a book called unleashed of poltergeists and murder the curious story of tina rush where he took up the cause of tina claiming she really did possess powers and was innocent of her daughter's death if you want to learn more about this story from his and tina's perspective there's a website www.christinaboyer.org
1: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this case and all of our past cases, head on over to ohiomysteries.com. And also check out KillerPodcasts.com. There you will find more podcasts just like ours. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.